0: Smith. So is robbing a church in Rome when the priest catches him. The holy man tries to stop him from stealing the collection in the poor box. He implores Tommaso to repent, but instead the vile fiend stabs the priest in the heart and leaves him to die on the church floor. The money intended for the poor is spent on food, wine, and a good bed for Tommaso to sleep in that night but his sleep is anything but restful. Tommaso is plagued all through the night by visions of the priest, begging him to repent. Tommaso takes the wrong inspiration from the priest's words, thinking instead that he can commit any sin he desires, and so long as he repents before dying, his soul will never be trapped in hell. Thus, Tommaso continued to steal and kill always believing he could save his eternal soul at the last minute by repenting. One day, the police catch Tommaso robbing a woman in an alleyway. He bolts and, in desperation, flees into the darkened catacombs beneath the city. Just before he disappears from sight, the cops open fire. One bullet rips into Tommaso's back. He staggers but manages to keep running, despite the agonizing pain, until he loses the cops and himself in the maze of tunnels. Finally, Tommaso slumps down to rest and tend to his bullet wound. But then, a hooded figure approaches. Thinking him a monk, Tommaso brandishes his knife and demands the monk escort him safely out of the catacombs. The hooded figure laughs, and reveals himself to be none other than Satan in all his red-skinned, horn-headed, pointy-tailed, trident-carrying glory. Satan tells Tommaso that he's waited a long time to claim his soul, but Tommaso says the devil will never have it. The priest told him any man alive can always repent and find God's forgiveness any man alive, perhaps, Satan concedes. But what makes Tommaso think he qualifies? He shows the wicked sinner a corpse lying on the ground. Tomaso is horrified to see that it's him. The gunshot had killed him after all, and he died without ever repenting before God. That terrible realization causes Tommaso to scream, which he would do for all eternity now as he suffered in the fiery pits of hell. Beat the Devil is written by Jack Olek, with pencils by Jack Katz, and inks by Tony Desniga. It originally appeared in House of Secrets, issue 99, cover dated August 1972. Hey there, listeners. It's PJ Frightful, back and blacker than ever. We've got a great show for you on this dreadful night. Ryan Daly welcomes two brand-new guests to the House of Midnight. That is, this old abandoned radio station. First up, the caffeinated Clinton Robinson joins Ryan for a story that will test your Arachnophobia. Then, Herman Lowe brings the Everglades to the Scottish Moors as he and Ryan unearth the fourth issue of Swamp Thing. There's tons of thrills and chills coming your way, folks, right after this promotional break. Stick around, or I'll find you. (laughs) Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married.
1: (laughs) Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw, Oh well, hey, I was looking at these old comics, and I noticed that there's Hold a... Hold tar- that
0: thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast?
1: We have a podcast?
0: It seems like the logical next step. We get married. We change our names. We combine our comic collections. We start a podcast about comic
2: books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say?
0: Oh, I think we'll manage... Welcome to the Married with Comics Podcast, where we constantly f*** up. It
2: goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. (laughs) Um...
0: And then apparently
2: he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right
0: past three monkeys <laughs> <laughs> In way, a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head <laughs> a right brainwave camera
2: up. and ben's just basically whatever you gotta do to stop the commies nick
0: so join us at the married with comics podcast we're two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently critically and thoughtfully discuss comic books Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names.
2: I do that a lot.
0: Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic.
2: And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman.
0: The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman.
2: The Married with Comics Podcast. Available directly on our site at MarriedWComics.Libsyn.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics Podcast.
0: We've got everything you need.
3: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this time is the host of the Coffee and Comics Podcast, Mr. Clinton Robinson. How are you, buddy? Good. How are you? I am very good, and it's uh, as you mentioned beforehand. Uh, it's been way too long since we talked. That uh, that Secret Origins podcast seems oh so long ago.
2: Wait, you did a Secret Origins podcast?
3: Uh, that's what I. David Ace Gutierrez keeps on reminding me that I did a Secret Origins podcast. I think he wants me to remember that I peaked a couple of years ago, and, <laughs> and since then it's been it's been all pretty downhill. I think that's why he keeps reminding me of it. But uh, yeah.
2: Well, if you had me as a guest, I'm sure it did go downhill, but that's okay.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as this is your first time on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, you get the very same prefatory question that everyone else gets. What is your experience with horror as a genre and horror comics in particular?
2: Well, uh, my introduction to horror was probably about the same as anybody else's. Uh, Just the general folklore, monster movies, that kind of thing. Uh, as a kid, I read a lot of the prose stories, watched a lot of Scooby-Doo. I <laughs> guess you could consider that a children's introduction to horror. I, I
3: I never thought of it, but it does bring up a lot of the horror tropes and elements into the story. It, it's going for a much different emotional response, but
2: yeah. <laughs> but uh, as far as horror comics, I actually kind of inherited one from my cousin, uh, Ghost Manor number 44, which is a Charlton. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Charlton. One. Yeah. And even though I had it, I think I flipped through it once or twice and just, I wasn't the demographic for it at the time. <laughs> so it took me a few years to really, like, actually figure out what it was, what was going on, that kind of thing. But uh, from there, I just kind of segued into what most people usually pick up uh, House of Secrets number 92. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, this was a reprint. Yeah. Unless you want to count "Destroy All Vampires" from Lost Boys movie, but th- 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 that probably doesn't quite count. <laughs>
3: uh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean that's that's probably why you know I've been asking you to be on this show for years and years, and you kept saying no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so well, uh, I finally got Clinton on board for this special short story. Uh, which debuted in House of Mystery 265. This issue was cover dated February 1979. The actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, was November 30th, 1978. We are going to talk about the cover to this issue a little bit later, but for now we are diving into the first story in this, which is called The Perfect Host. The writer is Jack Olick. The artist is Bill Drought. Ellis Grant is a man of wealth, culture, and sophistication, and a man who prides himself on being the perfect host. One day, he is playing host to his ex-fiancee Carol and her new boyfriend Paul, who have agreed, for some reason, to spend the weekend at Ellis's mansion. He tells them that one of his pets has gone missing on the grounds and asks their help in finding it. When they do, however, we learn that Ellis's pet is no dog or cat, but a tarantula the size of your fist. The sight of the spider unsettles Carol, and Ellis seems to enjoy taunting the woman who spurned him. He takes the spider back to a greenhouse and shows Carol and Paul countless jars filled with various nasty-looking spiders. Ellis tells his visitors that the spiders recognize him. They won't hurt him. He treats them so well, in fact, that some of the spiders have grown larger than normal. Carol and Paul are disgusted and disturbed. Ellis apologizes for being such a bad host, but he's clearly not that sorry. That night at dinner, he torments Carol again by serving the wine that was meant to celebrate their engagement. After the guests go to bed in separate rooms, Carol is woken by the sound of Paul screaming. She rushes into his room to find Paul dead and one of Ellis's spiders crawling away on the floor. It looks like one of Ellis's pets got out and killed her boyfriend. At least, that's what Ellis wanted it to look like, but Carol sees right through the deception. She confronts Ellis right there, accusing him of murdering Paul himself. He admits it, but says no one will ever believe her. Then Carol grabs a poker from the fireplace and attacks him. Ellis defends himself by striking Carol. The blow knocks her back, and she cracks her head open on the brick fireplace, just as Alice's butler enters the room. The butler checks on Carol and discovers that she's dead, and he must call the police ellis's whole scheme has gone terribly wrong he could have explained his way out of one dead body what with the missing spider but two corpses will send him to jail in a panic he runs out of the stately manor and into the woods nearby he keeps running until he trips and falls into a valley on the edge of the property the fall breaks his leg but he lands close to a cave and hobbles in there to hide He passes out in the cave, but wakes to feel something on his chest. When he opens his eyes, he is horrified to be looking right into the multiple eyes of a giant spider. Not giant by normal standards, mind you. This tarantula is bigger than Ellis himself. He screams, waiting for it to kill him, but it doesn't it crawls away out of the cave but comes back moments later not to kill ellis though but to feed him an apple from one of the trees out in the forest ellis can't believe his miraculous good fortune this spider must have been one of his pets that escaped long ago and just kept growing it knows him and now takes care of him. He can stay in the cave until his leg has healed. The police will search his house in the grounds, but they'll never find him here. He'll get away with the murders he committed. For days, Ellis stayed in the cave with the giant spider feeding him. Every day it went out and returned with food to keep him alive and healthy. Time passes, so much so that Ellis's leg has healed, and he tells the spider that he will leave tomorrow after one more good night's sleep. The next day, Ellis wakes on the floor of the cave. But something is wrong. He feels a sharp pain in his back, and his arms and legs won't move. The spider injected him with a paralyzing toxin in the night. He screams in outrage, but of course, there is no reply. The spider is gone." That's when Ellis feels a horrible, itching sensation. His mind drifts back to the memory of some long ago bit of trivia that he learned about spiders. He begins to scream in terror as he remembers that some spiders lay their eggs in a cocoon attached to the back of a paralyzed insect. When the eggs hatch, the hungry baby spiders devour the paralyzed insect, which is known as the host. Thousands of baby spiders emerge from the cocoon on Ellis's back and swarm all over him. His screams echo through the cave, but no one will come save him. For the thousands of little creatures that feed, Ellis Grant really was the perfect host. And that is our story. So, Clinton, what did you think of this story that I subjected you to?
2: I'm, I've got this crawling sensation <laughs> up and down my arms right now. Um, <laughs> no, th- this story's really, really good, actually.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. It's it's kind of it's it seems to creep up on I mean, you. Kind of simple, and part of that is, I think the art um, by Bill Drought who. he actually, he started a lot doing romance comics. Like, for years and years, he was just on romance books. Um, And certainly, the first couple of pages seem like they're kind of, like, fit for that. Um, And then he kind of moved his way into some of the horror realms and everything, but there's not a whole lot that's flashy about his style, but just, I think the story just works on a sort of psychological level. It taps into this kind of arachnophobia that everybody has to some degree or another, and it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's creepy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get the romance comics feel and everything. Um, like you said, with the arachnophobia and such. The I mean, it plays on the tropes. You know, the the double murder, the running. You know, I, I can't be caught. Mm-hmm. The twist, though, like I was actually thinking it would just end up being one of those. Well, you know, he raised these spiders and they ate him. Right. I, I did not see the whole egg laying thing coming.
3: Right. Yeah, that's the, that, the added layer.
2: Yeah, and it's the fact that he lays there for what does he say? Two weeks?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Like two weeks before he really figures it out.
4: <laughs>
2: I mean, that think about psychological torture.
3: Yeah, the passage of time in this is quite because, like, okay, just like looking at like on like what Ellis looks like in the first couple of pages. Like, I'm I'm specifically thinking like page three when he's in his tuxedo and he's does he remind you of anybody? <laughs> i was just thinking that
2: he looks like the kingpin with hair okay,
3: okay yeah, i can kind of like see a
2: young like... kingpin to me
3: yeah it kind of does i i look at that and i see the actor john candy
2: oh my god i now that you see it i say it i see exactly what you're talking about that and then, i mean this would panel where he's got that wine glass yeah
3: no, i mean like and draw wouldn't have been basing this on, on like this was probably like oh actually what I'm trying to think. Like this might have, like if he he might have seen John Candy, at, like a uh, a Second City type of thing. Like I don't think he really got big until the early '80s, but it's possible. But yeah, they, they, that's what I see him in. But like once he's fallen into the cave over like the course of the last couple of pages, we see he must be down there for a long time because not only does he grow a pretty decent beard, but he gets really skinny. You know, just feeding on nothing but apples and such. <laughs> Um, he's he's kind of like all scrawny and bones by the time that the, the spiders actually devour him. So,
2: Well, I mean, he he says he waits there long enough for his broken leg to heal up where he can walk on it. So, you know, I'm no Dr. Ange, but I'm going to assume that's at least two months. Yeah, I think. Yeah. You were talking about the art in the early part. On page two, where they're hunting for the, the spider, from like the first three or four panels, do you get the sense at all that he is rich? Um... Aside from that, you know, greenhouse-looking thing.
3: Not necessarily. I mean, I, I remember, like, the, when I was first starting to read it, like, just, like, the clothing that he's wearing or something. Like, I thought he looked kind of, like, young and childish and just kind of didn't fit. But, yeah, no, not necessarily.
2: Yeah, yeah. see, that's what I thought. I was picturing, you know, this is, like, you know, Archie Comics gone wrong. Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. Like, yeah, because, um, like, the setting, like, on the outside, like, it kind of looks like they were, like he's, like, like the schoolyard sociopath who traumatizes the other kids, with the spiders and everything like that. And and then you realize, no, it's actually something completely different. Um,
2: yeah, it's like, hey, you know, I've, I've made this guy a partner of my farm. You know, we're all dressing for dinner. I have a butler. <laughs>
3: but, but it's also like that we used to be engaged, and you dumped me for this younger, more attractive guy. Come stay at my mansion for a weekend. Well, I'll,
2: I'll... Because nothing suspicious can come of that.
3: Right, right. I mean, I guess... I guess if this guy's a – if Paul is a junior partner, he might feel like he's obligated to do so or he'll get fired, but that's –
2: I don't know. Yeah. I mean I know it's one of those things they have to just kind of move that all along because you only got eight pages to tell the story.
3: Right, right. Even with that, like the first page is really – it's Kane setting it up and then we get like a sort of like half or two-thirds of the page splash kind of flashing forward towards the end with, like, Ellis, like when he's, like, disheveled and bearded talking to this giant spider and everything. Like, I, you can almost really kind of, like, disregard that entire page and just start with page two. So then it's really, we're talking about seven pages to tell this story. And it's it's pretty economical in the way it does it. I mean, it is a short eight-page story, you know, despite the fact that, you know, it took me a while to get through that summary.
2: I do have one question. Mm. What makes Ellis think that his butler didn't, like, just embezzle all that money in the time that he was gone?
3: (laughs) Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, we never get a sense of, like, what the investigation is actually doing if the cops even showed up. I mean, the butler could have gotten rid of the bodies himself or just just taken all, like, the china and sold it. And And the butler looks like a butler. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, close your eyes and imagine what you think a butler looks like. That's what this guy looks like.
2: Not even like the charismatic Alfred kind of butler.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I, again, like I, I, the first half of the story, you're right. It kind of like follows the Trumps. He's setting these people up. He's got this sort of convoluted plan to make to kill off like his his rival, his like the new <laughs> boy in you know his lover's life and he's going to blame it on, like, an escaped spider, like, poisoning him or something, but she doesn't buy it. She knows that it's a murder, so he has to kill her, and he panics, as they do, and then it's, like, he's getting away with it, but no, he has to, like, in the horror fashion, he has to get his punishment, but it's so much worse because of the, the psychological torture and just, like, the idea of this giant spider, and... And I love like on the on page seven where he's like you know he's telling it like it's his pet you know he's like you know I'll I'm finally healed and I can get out of here I'm just gonna go to sleep one more night and you just get this middle panel it's just a close up of like the spider and it's obviously there's no word balloons because what are you gonna attach the word balloons to but it's just like you can tell there's thoughts going on in there and like like has it just been waiting this entire time does it know okay this guy's leaving I have to act now or it's just biding its time and it's. Oh, it's it's creepy. Kind of thinking like what alien thoughts are going on in the in the mind of the spider.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's just God. I didn't even really think about that. Was the spider planning it from the beginning?
3: I mean, I can't imagine. Like, I I can't imagine like why else it wouldn't have been feeding him. Like it seems like that's got to be like it's it's not like I mean because it had to know like its body cycle that it was going to be laying these eggs. <laughs> So so and then the way it's done like the last page like when he figures it out like cuz we just get close ups of his face as he's fear so we don't see the cocoon actually on his back so we don't know what's going on because it would be almost from his perspective where he can't see it and he can't move and then the the final reveal of the spiders crawling all over him it's ugh. yeah it's the art is Effective enough, especially on that last page, to convey the sense of dread and horror that it needs to do. But up until then, it's really just this mental game that it's it's doing with the story that's so creepy and and unnerving that I think really gets it across. So it's an effective story that way. Uh, as promised, I want to talk about the cover to this issue, and uh, that actually brings me to how I got this comic um, when I was first. Planning this podcast, um, not this episode, but like the podcast in general. So, a couple of years ago, um, I had the House of Mystery treasury and the Ghosts treasury, both of which I've talked about with Rob Kelly over on Treasury Cast. Um, but I needed more, I needed some more sort of anthology story material to cover, um, and I wanted to, I didn't want to just get, like, random issues, I wanted to know that I was getting some really good stuff, so I went to eBay, and I think in one lot I got all of the digests, or at least a couple of the digests, like, there's two ghosts' Digest. there's the, uh, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love and the House of Mystery Digest, and then I got, like, a, um, a Bernie Writes Special Tribute issue that had the, um... Uh, the gourmet uh, story with the frog legs that I've talked about with Martin Gray and the secret of the Egyptian cat that i talked about with Sean Ross um, and a few other just random bits, like issues of Tales of the Unexpected and stuff. Um, when the I got the order, when it was delivered to me, this issue of House of Mystery was included with a little white note that said, Freebie! and I was like okay I just threw this one in as free. Well when I opened the comic I could tell why because the pages are falling out like the staples are are messed up. Like I think like as far as I know the comic is intact. It has all of the pages um but they're not really stapled together so it's, a, it's kind of falling apart. But uh I was I was happy to get this one for free because looking at the cover and I will post this on the website of course um it is a Michael Kaluta cover so you know it's of a certain quality. No background, just a sort of reddish-orange. And it's kind of an image of the story, but we get a man, ostensibly Ellis Grant, although he looks nothing like it. He's kind of like skinny, scrawny. He's in like shredded shirt and pants and everything. And he is tangled up in the web so that he's kind of like dangling with his back arched. And this big spider is on top of him. But unlike the way that Bill Drop draws a spider, this thing is spinely in its legs and its, like, upper body and, like, the the thorax is, like, kind of big and bulbous and everything, and it's it's like going for his face, but he's kind of like holding it up just above his chest so you can kind of see the fangs and it's just a really striking cover, and, like, the, the way the webs are, like, holding him up but, like, with the arch and everything, like there's a weird creepy sort of, like, lover's embrace... Dance type of like feel that I'm getting from this, like, but like with the spider lunging at him and the guy like repelled back, it's it's just ah, it's 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 so shocking, but it's really really good. Um, and sharing a little bit of uh, behind the scenes, my wife has a severe arachnophobia, and just tonight as I was getting ready for this podcast, I was coming downstairs and I had to carry my kid who was like asleep in my arms, so I asked her, I was like, hey, can you grab that stack of comics and carry it down for me? And she did, and I was like, "Hey, look at that cover!" and she looks down at this, and she just, like she goes white, and she looks at me she 's like, "Why did you make me look at this?" and she had to turn the comic upside down on the top of the stack so that she was looking down at like the Lego ad that 's on the back um, and I was like, you you can 't even like have it like facing out and she said her fingers started to get tingly like it this set off her arachnophobia that much, just this cover so Ah, oh, it's, it's powerful. What did you think of the cover the first time I showed it to you?
2: Well, while I find your story hilarious, <laughs> the first time you showed me this cover, I pretty much had the same reaction of your wife. I looked at it, and I'm just like,
4: Jesus Christ. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Ooh, it's bad. It's, yeah.
2: <laughs> and the more you look at it, the scarier it gets. You know, the proportions on the spider are bad enough, but to look at the guy, I mean, he is practically contorted trying to get away from this thing. Yeah. You know, his back's completely bent, you know, about as far as your spine will go. Plus, his head's still tilted forward trying to make sure he has the thing in focus. You know, he can't do anything with his legs, apparently. <laughs> I mean, it's absolute terror.
3: Yeah. I mean, you you like can't tell like the legs are so spindly and like tiny that it almost looks like the legs are like digging into his like legs and shoulders or whatever mm-hmm. like they're like needles like if he was bleeding from those spots it would be believable that they're like he's it's like attached itself to them but it's yeah oh gosh it's it's nuts it's it reminds me in a certain way of the face hugger from the alien movies like it's it's not going at him the same way but it, it, that's kind of what it reminds mm-hmm. me of yeah. Well, I'm glad that I could share this, uh, this bit of dread and terror with you, and I'm glad that you could share with it uh, – or I'm glad that you could share it with, uh, with our listeners, Clinton. So, yeah, th- thanks for indulging me because I've wanted to talk about this story for a while.
2: Send all psychologist bills <laughs> for nightmares to Ryan Daly, care of. Uh,
3: put, it on the, put it on the tab for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. They, uh, they, they handle everything for me. Yeah, we've got a special lawyer on retainer just for me and what I do. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, thank you very much, Clinton, for being on this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where else can people find you if they need to hear more about you and your shows?
2: Uh, Well, thanks again for having me, Ryan. I do appreciate it. Uh, If people do actually want to hear more from me, I do a little show called The Coffee and Comics Podcast. Uh, You can find that on most podcatchers or directly on the website, coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Coffee Comics BLG. It's
3: a good follow. I highly recommend it. Love talking to you on Twitter. It's actually much better talking to you on Twitter than in person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people don't have to hear me when I'm on Twitter. Go figure.
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay, folks, we're going to take another promo break right now, but stick around because on the other side lurks the Swamp
4: Thing. Mm-hmm.
5: Can I get a
4: tall chai? And a large black coffee.
2: And I suppose you're here with no agenda, as per usual.
0: On the contrary, I'm here for
2: comics. I think I can help all of you. Hello, I'm the caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and I host a podcast called Coffee and Comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old, and the coffee is never too cold.
3: We're back to talk about Swamp Thing, and I am so excited to welcome my next guest. It is somebody that I have wanted to talk to for a while now. He is the host of the Long Box of Darkness podcast and the co-host of Into the Weird. Please welcome Mr. Herman Lowe. How's it going, man?
1: Hi, Ryan. Yeah, it's going great. I refuse to complain. I'm just so happy that I'm on this show. Finally. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been chumming the waters, the podcasting waters a little bit, throwing things out there on Twitter. Hints. Trying to get you to, to notice me. Finally.
3: I, I don't do subtlety. You've got to bang, you've got to smack a bottle across my head or something like that and tell me, hey, yes, me, something like that.
1: <laughs> awesome. But, but thanks for having me on, man. I'm really oh, yeah. uh, psyched for this. Um, it's been a dream of mine. You know, I've fulfilled three of my podcasting dreams by now. The first one was to be on my favorite uh, horror movie podcast, The United Nations of Horror. Nice. My second one was to be on Midnight, the podcasting hour. <laughs> And my third one, I want to be on a a Stephen King podcast. Probably The Losers Club. I don't know, but that's like a, a pipe dream at the moment, but... Um, So you know, this is a big deal for me being on Midnight. Finally,
3: I'm a a fan of the Losers Club. That's a good show.
1: Um, You know,
3: thank you so much for joining me. This is just as much of an honor for me uh, because I am a big fan of your shows. And given that you have your own podcast dedicated to horror comics and a whole other show focusing on like weird and or supernatural characters, I was a little bit nervous that your answer to my first question would be like an hour long. But for our (laughs) listeners. Tell us how and when did you get into the horror genre and specifically horror comics?
1: Yeah, well, I'll try to keep it short. Um, I've done this on podcasts before, but I'll, I'll try to give a fresh take on, you know, my horror origin. Basically, you know, I'm from South Africa. I was born a South African and I'm an expat now living in Taipei. But um, it was a little bit different for us, you know, back in the late 70s in South Africa as comic book collectors. We had the corner stores, same as you guys. They stopped comics, but it was normally two or three years out of date. The comic books that we received, they shipped them two or three years late. You know, so we never got it on the regular until about 1982 or so. But, you know, so we had this, uh, the corner stores with the spinner racks and the comic books. But that's not how I was introduced to them at all. I was actually very lucky. I had an uncle who was a huge comic book collector. And he had done a couple of trips to the States as well. um, And he had brought back comics, but only for himself. And then for some reason, when I was five years old, he gifted me his long box. Now, he only had this one long box. It was filled to the brim. Probably 300 comics in there, at least. So right off the bat, a five-year-old me, I was a a comic book collector without even knowing it. I had this (laughs) massive stack of comics. And um, most of the stuff in there uh, was war comics and and some sci-fi comics. We were talking a lot of stuff like... Also some fantasy um, titles like uh, DC's Beowulf, uh, mm-hmm. Hercules Unbound that they did, um, lots of Warlord, you know, uh, Travis Morgan Warlord. And then more than a third of the stuff in that long box was horror comics, you know. So they run the gamut from the Marvel horror titles, from the DC stuff. They had some uh, Charlton in there, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but no magazines, though. To the best of my knowledge, the horror magazines were never sold directly in South Africa. I don't know why. But um, the comics sort of flew beneath the radar of the censors because I grew up in the apartheid era. They censored a lot of stuff. They didn't want any you know, Western uh, or American rhetoric to yes. <laughs> reach us, if you know what I mean. You know, Some ideology that the government didn't agree with. They wanted to keep that out. But comics, they didn't care. They thought, okay, Richie Rich, Casper... You know, maybe Asterix and Tintin from Europe. That's fine. The kids are great. So, hey, let's get some comics in here. (laughs) So, you know, that's how I was exposed to horror comics. But I did read the superhero titles in that box, too. Probably more so than the horror at first because they were more colorful and more interesting. And I couldn't really read at the time. So I was paging through stuff looking for interesting pictures. Mm -hmm. And then the same year, when I was five years old, we're talking maybe 1981 here, I was staying over at the same uncle's house. Uh, they were uh, sort of babysitting for me, and in the middle of the night, I got up to pee, <laughs> and uh, the, their living room is very far away from the bedrooms, so I was wandering around the house you know, after visiting the bathroom, and I couldn't go back to sleep, so I went into the living room, and uh, this is how I became a horror fan now. It's all leading up to, to this point, Ryan. Um, I popped in a, a VCR into the the VCR player because I was bored. I was probably thinking it would be, you know, Superman the movie or Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. I didn't know what it was what it was going to be watching, so I put in this VCR, this tape, and it turned out to be David Cronenberg's The Brood. <laughs> yeah, five year old me, David Cronenberg's The Brood, and you know, um, you have the 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 flight or fight response, but you also have the freeze response, right? Now, now I can't remember exactly what happened to me then, but I can viscerally remember scenes from that movie. The bloody fingerprints on the stairway banister, you know, the, 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 the meat hammer, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you, you know, when, when these people got murdered. Uh, so I remember these scenes and it must have been disturbing for five-year-old me, but not as much as I thought. I didn't get any nightmares from it, which probably says something about me, but, you know, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm not stalking people at night or anything. But, um, you know, and I, the, the freeze response kicked in. I couldn't move from the sofa. I was riveted. I had to watch this movie to its conclusion. And um, I couldn't remember details from the film, but I can remember that I wanted more. You know, it's kind of like, what, what's that, that taxi driver from Deadpool 2? I want some more. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, after that, I did it again. And, the, the, you know, another night when I stayed over at their house, I popped in The Prophecy. You know, which is a a, a movie about environmentally mutated animals and stuff. And the same thing. I I enjoyed that, too. So, you know, eventually I did get nightmares from these things. But um, that's that's my how I got into horror. And then after after that experience, I went back to the long box that my uncle gave me and I started digging out the horror comics. And I found that I enjoyed them so much more because now I paid more attention to them. Hmm. Right. So it was more meaty. It was more interesting and, and more frightening. And and ever since then, I've sought out, you know, the sort of the fear response um, in, in all manners of, of media, whether it be video games or movies or TV shows and especially comics. So I'm not saying the more disturbing, the better. It still has to be done tastefully, artfully. You know, it still has to be done with, with a little bit of uh, literary value mm-hmm. to give me that real kick. But, you know, that's that's basically my horror comic origin. And after that, I started collecting... Actively, you know, I, I would go to the spinner racks. I would search out the horror comics, and eventually, I found a secondhand bookstore, and they stocked magazines. Yeah, they stocked all the horror magazines. We're talking here: creepy, eerie, Vampirella, even uh, stuff like uh, Skywald. You know, the Skywald magazines—they were very rare in South Africa at the time, and um, it was brought over by people from the states. You know, or, or people traveling abroad, they, they got those magazines, they traded it in at this bookstore, and you know, I, w- I traded my dad's mad magazine in for them because they kind of had a policy. you have to trade. You know it was sort of like a, uh, it was a second-hand bookstore, but the older stuff you had to trade
4: hmm.
1: you know so, so, so that they wouldn't run out of stock, right? So you had to trade magazines for magazines, comics for comics, and you could buy the newer books they stocked but you couldn't buy the o- older stuff, so I had to trade for it. And that's how I got my hands on the monster magazines and you know, and, and then it really started because then I was exposed to horror on a much higher level. We're not talking, you know, like the, the muted horror from the nineteen seventies here where the code's still applied, right? Right. We're right. talking you know, the deep, really visceral stuff. Although I did have to hide some of that from my folks because, you know, Vampirella, it's a little bit too cheesecakey <laughs> for to leave it lying around your bed bedroom, right? <laughs> So, yeah, that's the long and short of it. That's how I got into horror comics. Wow,
3: very cool, very cool. So (laughs) then for the purposes of this story, what was your experience or how did you get into Swamp Thing?
1: Oh, okay. Well, uh, probably the movie. You know, 1982, we went to – I think it was at the drive-in that we saw at the drive-in movie theater. My my folks took me. And, um, you know, I only had one Swamp Thing horror comic in that long box, strangely enough you think, statistically speaking, 300 comics, there must be more Swamp Things in there. No, no, no. There was only one Swamp Thing comic, and that was from Swamp Thing Volume 1, uh, Issue 9. Yep. The Alien. Yep. You remember yeah, the Alien issue? issue? That's a great one. But, you know, I didn't appreciate it uh, as much as I should have, you know, and it was also tattered. It was in horrible condition. Where it, basically, all the comics in this box that I was gifted uh, was in terrible, a terrible state, Uh, of disrepair so you know obviously um if if something looked good i would read it if the pages were faded and torn i wouldn't really pay much attention to it i remember this one was one of the the damaged ones you know the swamp thing number nine which which is an atrocity my uncle should be you know raked across the coals of hell for that but (laughs) no no i thank him for getting me into the genre but you know what i mean is i only had that one comic and then after the movie in 1982 I loved Swamp Thing so much, so I went back into the long box, searched for that comic, read it, and then I went on a scouting expedition to get more Swamp Thing comics. And I ended up – this is 1982, so I ended up buying uh, the Marty Pasco and Tom Yates. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I only ended up buying one comic at first because that's all I could find in the Spir- Spinner Racks. And I don't know if you ever read this comic, Ryan, but this is the one. I think it's Swamp Thing – Saga of the Swamp Thing number 7 where uh, Swamp Thing and his entourage, they're on this luxury liner. On this cruise ship. And there's these people running around, uh, passengers of the ship with this these eyes, these red cyclops eyes attached to their faces, almost like Starro, you know, attaching the starfish to the faces of the Justice League. This was almost like that, except more, more horrific. And these passengers were running around the ship, and something was evading them. And then finally, he entered the indoor pool area. And you have this amazing splash page by Tom Yates of this giant red. Octopus, alien, just chilling in this <laughs> massive indoor pool.
3: I'm actually – I'm looking at that page right now in the big swamp thing omnibus, the Bronze Age omnibus.
5: Oh, oh
1: man. Yes. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> that thing used to be my screensaver for a while on my phone, <laughs> my, my wallpaper. And, and you know, you've got uh, these tentacles, hundreds of tentacles, obviously not a, your regular octopus. And each tentacle is tipped with an eye. But it's kind of an eye that looks like a runny, bloody egg, you know, Mm -hmm. on on the tip of each tentacle. And then it slaps this tentacle into Swamp Thing's face. And suddenly he's got this eye attached to his face. And I I remember after just paging through that comic at the corner store, I was a massive Swamp Thing fan. The movie had already prepared me. It, It had sort of set the stage for me to jump into the Swamp Thing mythos. But after I read that comic, I just couldn't get enough. And then I just... From then on in, from issue seven onwards till the end of the Rick Veach run, I regularly collected all the Swamp Things. of course, I missed a few issues here and there. Mm. And that is why Swamp Thing is, in fact, my favorite DC character. Mm. Throughout all of his iterations, all of his personality changes, depending on the writer, he still remained yeah. my favorite DC character. Very, very so that's cool. that's a very long-winded <laughs> origin, but, you know... Like you said, uh, I've got an excuse. I've got my own (laughs) podcast.
3: (laughs) Well, that that was what I was looking for. So uh, very, very cool. I'm glad that you have prepped our listeners for your love of Swamp Thing (laughs) so we can get into this issue. Um, Swamp Thing issue four has a cover date of April slash May 1973. But according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the on sale date would have been February 6th that year. Along with a 20-cent price tag, the issue sports a cover by series artist Bernie Wrightson depicting the titular creature rising up, or perhaps sprouting, from the muddy earth as an animalistic monster watches from the background and a dark and gloomy mansion looms over them even further back. Herman, what do you think of the cover to Swamp Thing number four?
1: Okay, well, it's hard to say anything bad about a Bernie Wrightson (laughs) cover because the guy is so good at, at just you know imprinting these images especially like splash pages or or these 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 visceral uh, scenes that tell more than just the story you see you know there's definitely a story here okay. on the cover it sort of want, it draws you in you want to read more but um this is one of my least favorite covers in fact for reasons being that DC might editorial might have told him you know you got to preview something that's going to happen in the issue but you you, you might bernie probably didn't want to give away the monster or the or the the antagonist Um, that Swamp Thing would face. So he sort of disguised what um, the actual monster in the comic would look like. I'm not going to spoil it for the listeners yet, but... The, the the portrayal of the monster on the cover is kind of like a goblin-like creature wearing clothes, Yeah. right? It it, it does have the legs, which you would associate with the animal he's going to encounter later on or the monster he's going to encounter. But um, it's almost as if he didn't want to show you too much. Now, now that actually is a good thing. That speaks to Bernie Wrightson's skill as saying he doesn't want to give too much away. But why not do it? Why not just put the, the, the full glory of the monster that he's going to be facing – on the cover That's 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 my thought Because he's so good at drawing this particular Type of creature
4: mm-hmm.
1: So not one of my favorite covers And another thing is uh, That I do like about the cover though Is uh, every cover that features Swamp Thing Rising out of the muck
4: mm-hmm.
1: That's always um, It always uh, makes an impression on me And in this one though If, if you read the story later on uh, we'll, We're definitely going to be discussing it uh, Swamp Thing's sort of freeing himself from quicksand, right? That, yep. That's what features later on the story. But when I first saw this cover, it was sort of, it almost made me think like Swamp Thing was lying in ambush using his natural camouflage <laughs> to to kind of like get the jump on this being that he's going to be fighting, you know? So then, much to my disappointment, when I, you know, continued to read the, the, the comic book, um, that was not the case. The case was more like a bit of clumsiness on Swamp Thing's part, uh, also a bit of a, a plot hole, you know, uh where he literally just tumbled into some quicksand and he's freeing himself. <laughs> but a great cover overall. That's that's the only negative side to the cover is is sort of the context of the story that he had to portray.
3: Yeah, I like how he has like a little bit more foliage and like brush, there's like dried leaves and everything kinda and of, like and sticks matted to him like they're clumping to him. Yeah. Which makes it seem like he's almost kind of forming out of the, the earth itself, like it's kind of it's giving shape to him. Um, or he's sort of rising up out of ambush to like spring, <laughs> which I like that idea too. Um, I really like there. There's an a, a, an interesting thing about the Swamp Thing covers was that the image that Wrightson was drawing were all square images, square pictures, because yeah. the title had this sort of masthead thing where there was usually just a solid line of of just a splash color like red or black or something on the top right. of the of the cover with the Swamp Thing and the, you know, Comics Code seal and, like, the date and everything like that. So his image isn't the normal rectangular shape that you would expect. This one is more square. But I like that there's actually kind of, like, a twiggy branch coming up out of his back that's actually breaking through that. It's coming up over the sky and it's breaking into that little extra space at the top over that that color with the the Swamp Thing title, too. I like that great breaking that. yeah.
1: That's a great observation. Yeah, I love that too. It is—it is strange that you know these covers feature these square images. You know, but but what I like is I like the black background. You know, to the comic, I kind of dig that. And obviously, Swamp Thing—one of the most the the best designed uh, logos. Yeah. You know, if you talk about the name as the logo, the greatest. I, I just love it. You know, uh, the the red background that surrounds it, and um, the fact that this branch that you're mentioning is sort of reaching in front of that. Yeah, it it definitely speaks to Bernie's uh, uh, props, you know, uh, his skills as an artist and, and as a, a conceptual thinker. Yeah. You know, Bernie obviously was great at that, and um, that's what evoked the horror in most of his single-panel images like that. So I agree with you. Great little detail there.
3: Okay, then let's get into it. Monster on the Moors is written by Len Wein, illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, and edited by Joe Orlando, the usual cast of uh, characters. The Swamp Thing wakes up beside the wreckage of a crashed seaplane that he had been riding on at the end of last issue. Before he can check to see if Agent Matt Cable and the young Abigail Arcane are alive, a horse-drawn carriage approaches the wreck. Swamp Thing hides and observes a man and woman carry three live but unconscious bodies out of the downed plane and put them in the back of their carriage. From their accents, Swamp Thing figures he crashed somewhere in the Scottish moors but he also suspects that the couple may have sinister intentions for his injured friends, so he follows the carriage back to an old mansion. A few hours later, Matt, Abby, and their pilot, Paul Rodman, wake up. Angus Macab and his wife Jenna serve them tea and ask how they happened to crash. Matt Cable recounts that their plane suffered mechanical difficulty. The pilot thought he saw a row of landing lights as if from a private airfield. They tried to land, but crashed. The Swamp Thing watches from the window, remembering how there was no landing strip. When the plane went down, he used his own misshapen and brutish body to absorb the impact and slow their crash. Paul Rodman wants to return to the plane to check on its status. Angus implores him not to go out at night, that there may be dangerous animals on the moors. Rodman thanks him for the warning, but insists that he has to file a full report on the plane and check to see if the radio is working. He goes out alone, walking across the misty moors, when he senses something is following him. He turns around to see a huge, lumbering shape and two fierce red eyes. The four people still at Macabre Manor hear Paul Rodman's death scream, carried on the wind. They go out together to investigate and find the pilot's body ripped to shreds. Matt assumes it was a wild dog, but Angus says it was something bigger, a monster. Their argument is interrupted by the sudden appearance of Matt Cable's dog, the very dog that is secretly spying for the conclave. It, too, was on the seaplane and survived the crash. It finally tracked them down. So, you know, good that we're keeping up with that little side plot. The next morning, Matt and Abby are ready to leave by Angus's carriage when they meet Jenna's son, Neil Gaiman. I mean, Ian Macab. <laughs> Ian Macab, who was conspicuously absent last night. Then, Angus comes in and says the horse got free of the stable, so Matt and Abby will have to stay at least one more night. That night, something spooks the dog. Matt and Abby go outside to investigate, and they are nearly caught by the same furry beast that slaughtered Paul Rodman. They run, but the monster has them cornered. Before it can strike, though, the Swamp Thing attacks the monster. Matt and Abby run back for the house while Swamping fights the furry creature. He loses his balance and topples into quicksand, and the monster runs off. Back at the manor, the macabs fix Matt and Abby strong drinks. Very strong. Drugged, in fact. Matt wakes up strapped down to a table and Abby is tied to a chair. Ian Macab is strapped down to an identical table right beside Matt, just as surprised as the others. Jenna says they're going to perform a total blood transfusion, pumping the tainted blood that has cursed their son into Matt Cable and putting his pure blood into Ian. For years, Angus and Jenna have known of their son's terrible curse. They string out lights during storms hoping to trap planes, but every plane crash has resulted in only fatalities until this time. Ian struggles to get free. He doesn't want to pass his curse onto an innocent person. He rips free of the table, but at that moment he begins to change. Matt and the MacAbs watch in horror as Ian mutates into a huge, hideous werewolf. It approaches the captive abbey when the Swamp Thing, having escaped from the quicksand, barges in. Swamp Thing and the werewolf lunge at each other and fight throughout the manor. Swamp Thing looks around the house for anything silver to use against the werewolf. He finally spots the only silver that the MacAbs hadn't gotten rid of, the chandelier. He rips it down and swings it at the monster. Jenna Macabre steps in front of her monster son, but at the last minute the beast pushes her out of the way. The silver chandelier slams into the werewolf and crashes through the window. On the ground below, the werewolf reverts back to Ian. With his dying breath, he tells his mother he is finally free of the curse. Matt and Abby leave them so that he can pursue the Swamp Thing. Abby notes that the Swamp Thing saved them at least twice, but Matt is obsessed with catching the monster and avenging the death of Alec and Linda Holland. Herman, what did you think of this one?
1: Obviously, I can't gush about this issue enough because Bernie Whiteson draws a werewolf.
3: (laughs) Sold. You had me at that one. (laughs) Yeah.
1: This is the best rendition of a werewolf he's ever done for me. I mean, yeah, Cycle of the Werewolf. Amazing. You know, uh, brilliant. I mean, those are more illustrative, right? But this werewolf is frightening you know this one is the the one that I like from you know with the back bent legs mm-hmm. the, and and it's an albino werewolf too with these red eyes so that goes really well with its exterior so it's very visually striking and and you just know this is the kind of creature you don't run away from you know with those little rabbit legs on the back <laughs> <laughs> those thin little dog legs but you know very very scary looking creature and um uh, I do love the way he did the werewolf in Stephen King's, uh, you know, cycle of werewolf. But there the werewolf was more bulkier, you know, uh, more massive, which is also scary in its own right. But here the werewolf is more hearkening back to John Landis's, an American werewolf in London, mm-hmm. you know, with, the, with those uh, legs made for four-legged sprinting and um, really scary rendition of a werewolf. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why, why I really dig this comic. And another reason is it's got a classic horror setting. If you think about The Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr., one of the universal classic monster movies, it's set on a a fog-enshrouded estate or a forest. And here we've got the fens, we've got the moors uh, of Scotland as the setting. So that already uh, evokes this feeling of suspense right off the bat as soon as you open the, the, the comic book and start reading so you've got this great setting that just delivers the suspense and then the story just builds up, builds the suspense up until, you know, you you can't stand it anymore and it just explodes. And this comic is full of action, too. I mean, he faces the werewolf twice. Mm-hmm. Swamp Thing, I'm talking about Swamp Thing here. And um, you've got the the classic setup where... Someone, you know, I'm thinking Len Wein is a guy uh, who's in love with checklists. <laughs> That's just what, <laughs> what I'm thinking because, like, when he's doing a horror story, it seems to say that okay, I'm doing a story here. I want to do the Frankenstein monster. We gotta have a mob. We've gotta have torches. We've got to have a you know, face-off on a ledge or on a bridge or something like that. We've got to have a damsel in distress. So the same thing here. It's sort of like he's, he's taken his love of the Wolfman, you know, the, the universal classic monster movie. And then he sort of put that on the comic book page. But he's changed enough to make it its own thing. Uh, but, you know, Len Wein's writing aside, the, the whole issue is all Bernie for me. Every, every, even the, face, the facial expressions. You know, of, of the people here, you've got the MacAbs, and they look suitably sinister. At first, they appear to be all these nice old people, a little bit malformed, like most Bernie Wrightson characters are, but genuinely nice. And then, you know, they become sinister, you know, when they start giving each other these furtive glances, which Wrightson is so good at portraying. And, you know, just something that something bad's going to happen. So, <laughs> uh, you know, as a horror comic, definitely. This is one of my favorite of the early Swamp things. Um, but the main reason is the werewolf aspect to it. I love werewolves. Bernie Wrightson's werewolves are a favorite of mine. You just have to go on, on the internet to Google Bernie Wrightson werewolf <laughs> or Pinterest. Just, just save that stuff because it's, it's gold. It's,
5: it's great.
3: Yeah, I second everything that you just said, um, and and we'll take it sort of, like, step by step, but um, like you, I I love werewolves. Um, I actually, I mentioned this because I did a whole special episode on vampires, but I even mentioned that one, that werewolves are my favorite sort of supernatural monster. They have been since I was a kid. Um, I I just love these things, and... I, I don't think you can get a better illustrated werewolf than what Bernie Wrightson did. Um, and you're right. Like I, I point to sort of the most obvious would be the cycle of the werewolf that he did with Stephen King. But yeah, even in that one, some of like the the painted werewolf stuff that he does, like there's sometimes when he depicts it, when it almost has like the musculature of a bodybuilder with just the face of the werewolf monster. Yeah. Whereas this one looks completely inhuman, has a little bit of a length or a lankiness despite yes. its despite its real size and and how big it is. But yeah, like the splash page on page 18 that is as good as probably like almost any of the great bernie Wrightson covers and he did amazing covers that's he could have just been a cover artist for like in the 70s for like his horror work but yeah i, I think that splash page of the werewolf is just as good as any of those it's so scary it's so monstrous looking i yeah maybe maybe my favorite single image of a werewolf
1: Yeah, um, same here same here it always has been you know um that image of the werewolf has been stuck in my mind. I've been comparing that to every other you know, uh, rendition of a werewolf in comic books since, and I've never, ever seen any image to equal that. I mean, uh, the new series by Eduardo Riso and um, Brian Azzarello from Image Comics, Moonshine, it yes. comes close. I mean, Eduardo Riso doesn't mean werewolf, but – I mean, Bernie Wrightson is so far above even that. Right, right. Uh, I, I can't. I mean, so no, no wonder he's considered the greatest horror comic book artist of all time. You know, um, he's he's uh, neck and neck uh, to me with with Richard Corbin. But um, <laughs> you know, conceptually, I, I think Wrightson. You know, is the better artist just because, you know, he uh, can draw a variety of, of people and, and animals and monsters. Whereas Richard Corbin, you sort of it becomes formulaic after a while. But um, Wrightson's rendition of animals or uh, what, what do you call it? The interstitial state, you know, when people are transforming into something you know um, that I love. Because yeah, the it's series so of panels monstrous. on page
3: seventeen, right before the splash, the the whole bottom page mm. is is this close up of Ian as he's going through the changes and is covering up his face and everything. It's it's amazing, and and yeah, the the other artist that I would think of is. Um, well, Mike Plug, who was the original artist mm. on Werewolf by Night over at Marvel, yes, but I yes. think he was constrained by kind of the Marvel style and the house style. I mean, I wish yeah, yeah. I wish Mike Plug would have had a chance to really kind of go nuts with that character in that book without some of the constraints yeah. of just like the, the what was sort of conventional Marvel storytelling at the time. Because yeah. I think if you look well, at some of Mike mm. Plug's art, like he's got his own art books. And if you mm. had taken some of that, like what he does, like with like a, a sword and sorcery Conan type of thing, if he took that approach to a werewolf, whoo, that would have been oh. that would have been close to what Bernie Wrightson was doing in terms right. of quality and savagery. So,
1: yeah, yeah, you mentioned something interesting there. Yeah, the, the Marvel House style really constrained that. Mike Plud had to make Jack Russell <laughs> look more like a human you know that's one in one of the interviews i I read that was one of the mandates but um you know with a character who's not the main um protagonist you don't have to identify with them like this werewolf that bernie wrightson drew you can make him as monstrous as you want right you know and um so yeah unconstrained bernie wrightson is the best bernie wrightson i'm sure you would agree (laughs) yeah oh yeah but you know uh, what i dig about uh, Bernie Wrightson, but especially in this issue, is his little attention to the details of storytelling. If you see that sequence of panels that you mentioned where Neil Gaiman transforms into the <laughs> werewolf, I mean, uh, Ian, <laughs> as he's transforming, he becomes more hunched, right? So yes. at first his face is in the center of the panel, of the first panel, uh, and then it becomes more hunched and he becomes more hunched backed and his his head sort of lowers itself. And then the, the speech bubble grows to fill up the um leftover space Mm -hmm. and he starts saying more so you know and there's a lot of story packed into what he says just before he transforms because in those four panels you get his character his convictions his his noble spirit uh which is uh you know central to the story he's a self-sacrificing kind of figure this Mm -hmm. ian Macab, he doesn't want to kill he doesn't want to accept that his parents, um, you know, have the solution, which meant that someone else would have the curse and not him, you know, with the blood transfusion that they want to do on, on Matt Cable and so forth. So you have this, this sequence of panels that Bernie Wrightson laid out so perfectly with the person becoming more hunched and then the speech bubble sort of uh, filling up. To to make use of the leftover space. That is, for me, brilliant. And then yeah. sort of the the edges of the speech bubble also changes to show that his voice is becoming more monstrous.
3: Yes. Yeah, it, it oh. loses the, sort of the normal roundedness. It's a little bit more jagged. And there's just the thickness of the outline around the speech bubble. It just becomes like this heavy right. black um, – yeah no in it, it's incredible transformation um the other thing that I like about this issue, and you pointed this out too is just the classical werewolf horror setting We're out in like the hmm. the scottish moors it's the The landscape is covered with mist i The other sequence that I love is when Paul Rodman goes out. And you just see something, this like black kind of shadowy thing, and it's it's closing in on him. That whole idea of uh, out in the fog, you know, and just kind of losing it. Like every great classical horror movie, like werewolf, American Werewolf in London or whatever, had that in the beginning, and just this this feeling, this oppressiveness, and like, just like the style, like the old mansion that they go to on page four is another great little splash page, and the whole look, the yeah. ambiance, the setting of this, and is this weird thing that I I was not expecting because. My first – and I I think I mentioned this you know, seven or eight years ago when this podcast began, when I first started talking about (laughs) these comics. My first experience with Swamp Thing Comics was the Alan Moore run. Those were the first ones that I read um, when they were collected and everything like that. I didn't go back into getting the original run until only a couple of years ago. So when I was reading these, I was kind of astonished how this early run by Ween and Wrightson – it's so weird because they use the swamp thing, this muck monster as their protagonist, but through that, every issue is kind of diving into a different horror trope or a different little yes. sub-genre where, you know, yeah. issue two, you've got the mad scientist who, like, with Arcane trying to create the unmen and changing shape. Um, issue three that I talked about with Siskoid a couple of episodes ago, you get into the whole Frankenstein monster with the uh, the, the, yeah. the patchwork man. Patchwork. Sorry, I, think. I kept patchwork wanting to call man, him yeah. the, the rag man or something, but that's a different character. <laughs> Um, this one you have the werewolf trope. The next issue you'll have like Salem witchcraft, which, you know, you talk about like the the alien, but it, in issue nine, but it's a very sort of like B movie, playing Nine from Outer Space type of alien story. Exactly, type of yeah. Thing. Like, so yeah. He, they really kind of played into all of these kind of classical horror tropes. And that's because I'm a sucker for the werewolf as the as the genre, this one might be my favorite story of the Ween Wrights and Run. It's definitely up there. Just because of yeah. the the subject matter that they're getting into, and the whole atmosphere that that Bernie yes. Richardson is creating the the, got, the neo gothic sort of well not even neo the, just like the gothic you know rural atmosphere that he's creating yeah. with this I love it so much.
1: I think that's that's a good decision on, on Ween's part is to introduce this villain in Anton Arcane that sort of is based in, in you know, the Balkan mountains in Europe and then transferring Swamp Thing there, uh, even though it was done unbelievably. But, hey, it's <laughs> comics, right? So, you know, they flew across the Atlantic so quickly in this biplane. But, you know, um, they get there and then, you know, suddenly we're in this gothic um, atmosphere where Swamp Thing is primed to set him up against all of these classic monsters and then later on when he returns he's set up against american monsters we're talking here the, the sci-fi um uh alien monsters and then uh, the lovecraft uh, Yo, monsters, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is so american you know so I, I think this is him saying that okay it's not just pitting him against all these different monster genres it's also uh, showing the progression of how horror developed yeah, so, you know, from yeah. the beginning, let's let's pit him against these classic monsters, and then work our way
5: upwards.
3: Yeah, because you in know? between there, you'll get like the whole the village of robot people and everything, which gets yeah. the, like very sort of '50s style between like, wives robots. Style. Yeah, stepford wives and like the, yeah. e- even though, I mean, you could like invasion of the body snatchers. You could kind of go into like a theme of that and everything, and the the sort exactly. of fear of being replaced or usurped by some sort of foreign agent. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's a ton of stuff in that. You yeah. mentioned that um, the whole kind of craziness, that you, you just have to kind of go with it, that they're going across to, to Europe, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense. I did notice that in this episode, they actually call Matt Cable an Interpol agent, which I believe uh, is the yeah. first time they've ever said that in this, and I don't know if it mm-hmm. comes up again, but – it does sort of explain how he's operating internationally and why he's yeah, an, agent, an yeah. agent who's able to charter a seaplane to a foreign land and extradite people <laughs> across.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Which, with, with a conveni- uh, They conveniently made Matt Cable unable to pilot the craft himself, which set up the pilot to become a victim. Right, because you need some <laughs> you know, fodder
4: for the wolf monster. The- Yeah.
1: But but I think one I don't know I haven't read this in a while I mean obviously I've read this comic recently but I think in one of the previous issues that Matt did mention but but uh, I could be wrong here um, that he has transferred briefly to Interpol on an FBI related case or something like that maybe um, that was brought up I didn't remember that but it was I just... done in a thought bubble I just can't remember either because um, you know I did I just focused on this comic book um, you know relying on my knowledge of Swamp Thing to to fill in the gaps you know that i might have from the previous issues and the and the um you know preceding issues but yeah. um I'll, I'll read it again um you know i i do want to uh, reread these things over and over again mm-hmm. uh but this comic ryan like you mentioned this is definitely my favorite of the bernie wrightson issues for the same reasons that you like it the werewolf mm-hmm. but also because you know a comic should be weird it should be wacky and mm-hmm. this comic book is that i mean <laughs> think about it len Wein says, okay. We've got to get the hairy palms in here. We've got to get the moon-filled night. We've got to get silver, but we can't do a silver cane like we had in, um, you know, the Wolfman. We can't do a silver knife or a bullet. That's too right. cliche. Hey, let's do a, a silver chandelier.
3: Well, it's <laughs> so. it's a comic. It's a, it's not quite a superhero, but it's a it's sort of a superhero comic. So you know, go big. Bring the whole chandelier yeah. down.
1: And you've probably noticed uh, that this chandelier is sporting a massive silver spike at the bottom. It's sort of as if the designer of this chandelier, whoever made it, was saying that if this thing does come crashing down, I don't want the people to suffer broken bones or anything and (laughs) die in agony. I want it to be a quick kill and this spike will just impale them. (laughs) And that's what happens to the werewolf. I mean – technically basically you've got swamp thing taking out the werewolf by swinging this giant chandelier and then knocking him through the window and impaling him on the spike
4: right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's so crazy. And I mean just swamp thing bringing down the chandelier is already a little bit wacky. You know swamp thing's this lumbering muck monster is constantly complaining about being a clumsy and he can't move this body well. But then you've got him doing this uh, balletic leap upwards with this werewolf still attached to his waist and and grabbing onto the chandelier and you know i love that image that's like swamp thing looking like a like an olympic diver <laughs> I, know, I know he's Getting ready so, to, to so, take a dive into a swamp me, or something let me
3: make my body as aerodynamic as possible to yes. avoid wind resistance as i jump exactly up it. it's a swamp
4: thing what are you doing
1: <laughs> yeah but you know it works it works it's so crazy mm. but i love it when i first saw it i'm like whoa well, that is amazing. It looks like it that would have happened if Dick Grayson got you know right, right. Um, saturated with the biorestorative formula, and his mad acrobatic skills. But Swamp Thing, really, that is a great sequence of panels too. That, that final uh, battle in what I presume to be the dining room um, of the of the house, where, because there's a chandelier hanging you know above. And um, I, I like that progression because you've got the werewolf acting like a dog or, or like a real wolf would. It, it sort of struggles with Swamp Thing, but then it, it tries to get the upper hand by climbing towards Swamp Thing's back and attacking its neck. Mm-hmm. Attacking Swamp Thing's neck, which is what if you've ever seen dogs fighting. Right. I mean, not, not for sport. That's horrible. I'm just saying that, you know, we've all, we're dog owners. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes yes. they fight. They always try to get around the back, uh, grab a hold of the neck. And, um, you know, this is what happened. So Bernie, I don't know if he did this consciously or, or this was maybe subconscious images he had in his mind, but he really did that that sequence of panel, uh, panels well. And then you've got Swamp Thing complaining that this monster is gouging out huge chunks of his body. This was before Swamp Thing realized that later on in the series he would be able to regenerate, right? Yeah, I
3: think that comes to so the he, next issue after
1: this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. I, I remember someone cut off his arm and, and that was done. Uh, in the movie as well, as, um, but I can't remember everything in detail. But that part, you know, obviously Swamp Thing didn't have to worry about this. You know, he is technically immortal, which is what Arcane wanted him for. But the fact that he's battling another creature that's on his level, an immortal werewolf, and we do see the werewolf getting shot by by Matt Cable earlier on, and the bullets just harmlessly passing through him. So obviously, this is an enemy that's really on Swamp Thing's level. You know, and, and we see the werewolf getting the better of Swamp Thing at a uh, you know, in a couple of panels actually. Right. So um uh you know, I love that whole action part of this comic book. It was great. It just kept flowing.
3: And beyond the physical, we're actually seeing a lot more intellect coming from Swamp Thing in this issue. Um it, it, mm. it's sort of been I, I feel like It took a few months for Reen to kind of figure out the sort of the nature and the state of the Swan thing and how much Alec Holland is actually retained in here. Because throughout the battle, we see him thinking sort of strategically. He's like, I need to find silver. I know he, he kind of like just knows that silver will kill the werewolf. This family got rid of all of their silver. What can I do? I need a weapon against this guy. And that's when he's going for the chandelier. So he is thinking kind of tactically in what weapon will actually kill this thing as they're fighting, as he's got this thing chewing on his back. Um But even before yeah. that, I, another thing that I like, because it's it answers a question that's kind of been lingering for a little while, is when Swamp Thing is looking in the window, kind of watching them, and he kind of wanders off, he's actually thinking he, – he gives us an answer of why he doesn't just walk in and say, hey, Matt It's actually me, Alec Holland, your friend, that you're trying to avenge. This is what I look like now. This is my reality now. He actually kind of makes an excuse. And, you know, you can argue whether or not this is a believable excuse, but he basically says that the biorestorative formula that all of these people were trying to kill for, that formula died with Alec Holland, as long as the people believe Alec Holland is still dead— that formula will stay secret. Yeah. If I out myself, then everybody I'm close to will still be in danger, and I will still be haunted, and that, that nightmare will just kind of progress. So he's like, even though this sucks, I've got to maintain my secret, and I've got to let my friend think that I am a monster who killed his, yeah. his partner and everything like that. So... Yeah, it's, I, that's a good point. It, yeah. It's tough, but I mean, I, I like that mm. he actually, they showed Swan Thing thinking that through and explaining it for the audience that's been reading this for a couple of issues now, thinking dude just tell him who you are yeah and, and we yeah, find to get a reason I, for why he wouldn't do that
1: yeah this this is uh uh len ween you know showing some of his skill as a writer i mean some sometimes his writing is a little bit off in the early issues and in his uh you know earlier career for instance the whole plot with the MacOps, uh you know it's a little bit contrived getting people to land on this fake landing <laughs> yeah, strip yeah. and then It's happened multiple times that they have had many crashes with dead bodies being unsuitable for their blood transfusion to their son. And you'd think that, I mean, come on. Uh, Okay, the son is very noble. He must realize what's going on. If not, people must know planes are going down in this area since it's happened multiple times. But they never – nobody ever investigates. I mean, obviously, this place is remote. But but gee whiz, that was a bit of a stretch. But, um, you know, that aside – Len Wein has these nice little character interactions, even though Swamp Thing is sort of just thinking about, you know, Matt and Abby, he's sort of already considering them his friends. I mean, he mentions in this comic at one point in time my friends, yes. where, I mean, it's inconceivable that they would be his friends, but he sees them as that, you know, because obviously they've traveled across the Atlantic together, <laughs> even though Swamp Thing was on the outside of a of a plane at the time, but, you know, so they've, they've gone through um, uh, ordeals, you know, uh, with the patchwork creature yeah. in the previous I issue mean, so he
3: saved yeah. abby cable i don't think they had a coffee in between there i don't think they actually spoke <laughs> to each other he saved her
1: but like exactly i don't yeah. think they're friends <laughs> no 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 not yet i mean she would probably well i mean i think it was in the oh it wasn't this issue that that abby mentions that matt stop hounding him i mean he saved our lives twice mm. by now or something like that but he's yeah, like, she doesn't, I, I can't she doesn't let it go. they don't even
3: know that he, he saved the them in the plane crash because he stopped that. They're just oh. thinking of the two times from the werewolf. Yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. So if you think about it, if something wasn't on the plane, as luck would have it, the macabre would have had another <laughs> clutch of dead bodies to dispose of. <laughs> this, this is another one of those
3: things where I, I love looking at these these types of old comics and old stories. Mm. When it it usually happens the most often when cop or or law enforcement characters forget that they're law enforcement characters and they they kind of just focus on the one thing because on the very last page after the werewolf has died after Ian has kind of reverted back to human given his his deathbed speech and he he passes on the last page the top column, <laughs> Matt says well nothing more to be done here the beast is dead and the swamp <laughs> thing is probably long gone and they're yeah. ready to go it's like um. The Normal people wouldn't do this. Well, yeah. It's like the Macabs <laughs> yeah. confessed that they killed people. They sent yeah. traps. They lured plane crashes and disposed of the bodies in order to try and cure their son. They have confessed to murdering several people. And he's just like, well, what are you going to do? The werewolf yeah. is dead. The thing is gone. Let's get out of here. It's like nothing more to are be done. Like, this there are several, things. Th- there are several things you should be doing now.
1: <laughs> Yeah, we don't have time. We just get on to the next adventure. I'm hunting a, a monster here. I don't have time for these little asides.
3: <laughs> yeah, Matt, put them in the handcuffs and can walk with them back down to wherever the nearest village. Yeah. Is. yeah.
1: If the story contrived it to be like the you know the werewolf killed the mom and dad, mm-hmm. you know, then it would have wrapped that up nicely. You know this this little package, but it didn't. They're alive, and Matt's walking off. So yeah, that's a huge you know a problem. <laughs> In, in in any normal person's brain. But, you know, um, Len Lenwin has that aspect to his writing. You know, he's got these massive leaps of logic that you have to kind of do when you read his stuff. Not not all his stuff, but his early stuff at least. But then, you know, he's also got these subtle little things he puts in. For instance, after the plane crashed, I completely forgot about the dog, you know, Mutt. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I completely forgot about him. And then just as things are becoming really suspenseful, super scary, super frightening, the atmosphere is ramping up the tension... Uh they, they know there's a creature on the moors, they hear the scratching at the door, right, Ryan? Mm-hmm. The scratching, scratching, and they're thinking, oh man, this is the creature. You know, and, and Matt's taking out his gun, he's getting ready to, to to leap into action against this monster. And when they open the door, it's the dog, it's Mutt. Mm-hmm. And um I like to call him a dum dumb doggin because he kind of <laughs> his massive mustache, it kind of looks like you know, dum dum Dugan, Nick Fury's yep. pal. <laughs> He's got he's still sporting this massive mustache, and you know I completely forgot about the dog, but then uh, you know Lenwin brought him in with such a great scene where you're so, sort of like the tension is ready to explode and then oh there's there's relief, you know when it turns out to just be the dog. Mm-hmm. but then you know the tension comes back again. so he, he's timing the beats of the story pretty well by inserting these little things that um, you know that the reader needs because if you're nitpicking, you're you're gonna later on wonder what happened to the dog. And this dog is a central kind of like a plot point, almost a MacGuffin, because right. it's got that radio transceiver.
3: Which we don't really actually in address in this one. We don't know anything about no. Like, there's no hint that the dog is being used to spy. Um, and no. that will finally be resolved in issue seven.
1: Yeah, um, true, but, true uh, with the conclave and right. uh, the Batman guest you know, appearance. Oh, ooh, that punch. Ooh, Batman fans <laughs> all over the world still hate that. That little love tap. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm a Batman fan, but I love to show my... Batman friends how easily swamped no no no, let's not get into that I don't want to make (laughs) haters out of the listeners (laughs) anyway so great issue all around Ryan I uh, this issue seriously I would give it a 9 out of 10 yeah Um, or or 4.5 strong 4.5 out of 5 it's one of my favorites if not the favorite of the early of the first 10 issues of swamp thing of the Bernie Wrightson issues definitely
3: I, yeah, I definitely think it's, it's my first or second favorite of the first 10 Bernie Wrightson ones. And again, it's, it's just a good classical werewolf story. I think his art has, has never been better. It's just, it's so Mm -hmm. good. Like the, the atmosphere, like the splash pages of Swamp Thing looking over the, over the mansion and everything like that. Um, and then just some of your, you're right, like the interstitial, like images of the transformation in that splash page of the werewolf. I love that so much. Mm. So yeah, obviously there's going to be a lot of great imagery that I will put up on the website post when this episode
1: drops.
4: Yeah, there's so. one
1: thing I I forgot to mention, Ryan, I, because you're a huge, you know, um, DC horror fan. I want to ask you something. Um, don't you think that uh, this is about Bernie's art? Don't you think that uh, the, the image of the werewolf, uh, the first time I saw it, at least that's what I was thinking, the image of the werewolf's face kind of looks like what uh, Kane, you know, um, <laughs> keeper of the House of Mystery would look like if he had become a werewolf. You know it the shape
3: of... of the the shape of the beard and the facial hair. Yeah, the way like yeah. the, it's the it's really it's the chin fur that sort of sprouts sideways. Yeah, and, and that's like right. the, the sort of like the the way on the hair where it almost does like the sort of points at the. Yeah, you know what I can I can see that. Yeah, if Cain had become a werewolf, he would have had the same sort of facial grooming as this. Yeah.
1: But it just shows you how, you know, Bernie Wrightson, he never copies himself mm-hmm. unless he's – I mean, every time he draws a creature, it's always different than the previous time. He always tries to improve upon it or, or make it different. But, but here, I mean, I'm not saying he's consciously making it look like Cain, but um, it does have that sort of, you know, appearance. But um, if you think about it, Ber- Wrightson, when he does faces of people, there's always something a little off about the face, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things that, that bugged me about this werewolf, though, is its face is very human looking you know it doesn't have the uh, when you're looking at it head on it doesn't have the the, the elongated snout it right. still looks like let's say Kane's face you know but um because there's something off about the face it it evokes the the horror that you're feeling right so that's this that's something that when i was recently making some notes on on this issue that i realized all of bernie's art has every person he draws every monster he draws it sort of breaks the bonds of your preconceived notions of what a monster would look like or what a person would look like. There's something off about the faces. An arm is just too long. Uh, One eye is lower than the the other. You know, the nose is too big. Um, You know, almost like these these melted little candle-like grotesque figures that he's drawing. And, you know, I recently read a book that I think the listeners might enjoy if they're horror fans and that you might enjoy too, Ryan. It's a book called um, Why Horror Seduces. That's the name of the book, Why Horror Seduces. It's, it's written by this guy called Matthias Klassen. And in it, he explains how because we're primed to recognize faces as, as a, a natural sort of um, survival mechanism, an evolutionary way of, of dealing with you know, um, our peers and, and in a group, you know, which we have to depend upon for survival, we're primed to recognize faces. Now, if we see a face that's just a little bit strange to us, it immediately evokes the fear response, and that's what what I've just pinpointed it. I've I've hit the hammer on the head for me personally. What disturbs me about Bernie Wrightson's art is the fact that his faces are like that. Yeah. if you're in a, a group of Neanderthals or you know, and you see <laughs> these faces, oh my god, you know this guy's something to be frightened of, or there's something wrong with this guy. You know, that's what Bernie Wrightson does. It's it's almost like uh you know he's got this ability to enter your dreams. And and uh, do some flash photography in your nightmares, and then step out and do an Alex Ross, where he uses all those pictures as photo reference. Mm-hmm. You know, where he just like paints your nightmares, and um, he, he even improves upon your nightmares. You know, the the faces. Yeah, because like it's I mean, in you, my mind.
3: If you think of like you know your your typical you know big name superhero artists like a John Romita a John Byrne even a Jim Lee or something they also they always have a sort of a stock type of face a stock type of character yeah. that's very idealized the very pretty you know you're you're getting your your A list you know, most handsome, like, leading man and everything like that. But something that I did say, like, going back to the first episode of Something Be- or the first issue of Something that I covered, was Bernie Wrightson, when he drew Alec Holland, ostensibly the main character, he didn't look like that. He didn't look like a, a sort of leading man. He yeah. had a very large nose. He His, you know, his brow, his hair was a little bit unkempt and misshapen and everything like that. And there is a sort of, like, Humanity to that sort of natural, even though it, it's yeah. not necessarily a natural style, but the fact that they don't all look like their poster pretty yeah. boy like type of like the model type of the the ideal person that yeah. brings them down and gives them a little bit more pathos. And I I think you're right that the way he captured that with the faces and the forms and everything that was something that he really excelled at.
1: Yeah, definitely. Grotesque beauty yes. or be- the beautiful grotesque or whatever you would call yes. it. Bernie, I, I'm sure he did that consciously. Yes. I'm, I'm almost positive that he was, because he he's a student of Frazetta, not a student, uh, a disciple sort right. of, of Frazetta, right? So Frazetta had these chisel-like faces, but they were ugly. Mm. You know, they weren't handsome, but... You know, Bernie sort of, uh, you know, coming off of that old school, he sort of incorporated that and then he improved upon it, you know, by by making these faces so distinct, but horribly so. You know, you, you won't see this face in real life or when you do see this face, it's almost like a caricature of, of a real person's face, but not in a funny way, like in the Mad Magazines, uh, you know, um, parodies. This would be in the more horrific way, you know. <laughs> so that's what I love about it. I just wanted to throw that out there. If any of the listeners are interested in finding out why, you know, we're so primed to enjoy horror, mm-hmm. they definitely have to pick up this book and and you should too Ryan. It's on Kindle uh, somewhere on Amazon, Why Horror Seduces. There's lots of, of stuff about the face and about the figure and about how how we are disturbed by the malformed and the interstitial and uh, the animalistic. Uh, yeah. All of those things in there. So so check that out if if you want to understand Bernie Wrightson's art a little bit better.
4: I, I
3: definitely will check that out, so Well, yeah, I mean, you've given me more to think about and uh, definitely some things that I'm going to pay more close attention to when I get to further Swamp Thing issues down the road. Until then, Herman, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of Midnight. Um, I definitely want to have you back at some point in the future because this was so much fun. Um, Until we do that, uh, please tell the listeners where else they can find you online and in the podcastosphere.
1: Great. Well, first, let me say, Ryan, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks. You're one of my podcasting heroes, along with Rob Kelly and Shag. So this has been a joy for me to be on the show. And um, thanks for giving me the chance to plug my other stuff. Okay, so basically I'm doing The Long Box of Darkness, which you can find on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, um, a lot of other platforms. And then I'm also doing what you mentioned earlier, the Into the Weird show with my buddy Grant. So Long Box of Darkness focuses mostly on, you know, horror comics all across the board. Uh, I want to do modern stuff. I want to do the old thing, the old um, stories as well. And uh, Into the Weird focuses mostly on Marvel Bronze Age supernatural stories, but also science fiction, anything that's considered wacky or weird. Uh, we, we started off with Doctor Strange because he's sort of the genesis of the weird. Uh, in the Silver Age of Marvel, and then we worked our way upwards with, um, you know, uh, Vampire Tales and the, the Marvel Monster magazines. And we're also doing stuff like Skull the Slayer and, uh, you know, Weird World and all of those things. And uh, Howard the Duck, obviously going to be a big uh, you know, deal for our show later on. When it when Steve Gerber gets really weird. So <laughs> those those are the two shows. Jim Starlin's also going to figure prominently in that yes. show. Um, but um Longbox of Darkness and Into the Weird, that's the two shows I run. And then you can find me, um, I have two blogs as well, thelongboxofdarkness.com. Um and then uh sinkinto the weird Those are our blogs respectively. And I'm also on Twitter at uh, DarkLongbox Dark long um, and our Into the Weird show is there at Into Weird. So I would appreciate the listeners uh, following me and uh, checking out the shows, but um, we're nowhere near as 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 good as um, the Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm really using your show as a, a means to sort of improve mine by not copying what you do, but but definitely trying to you know at least uh, build on the legacy of the horror that you guys have been touting. And um, you know, I, I've got a lot to to work on to get up to your level, Ryan, but thanks for being a sort of uh, unofficial mentor.
4: (laughs) Uh, You
3: were were (laughs) way too flattering. Um, I I really am impressed with the stuff that you've been able to do and cover with uh, Long Box of Darkness. It's a really fun show. Um, I I like a lot of the other segments that you kind of get into. um, And I would, yeah, I highly recommend for any of our listeners. If you like this show, you'll love Long Box of Darkness. um, And for some great Marvel stuff, especially Doctor Strange stuff that they've covered so far, Um, You'll have a blast. Um, And also another one just for plugging this network. I'm sure if you're listening to this show, they probably heard it. But uh, you and your partner Grant were on the Treasury cast with Rob Kelly talking about a a Doctor Strange Treasury edition. That was really good. That's
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah, that was a fun show. That actually got us a lot of um, feedback and listeners. So uh, thanks to the Fire and Water Network for that and and to you guys. Um, But yeah, um, I've always uh, been a fan of your shows. I mean, you're – Your crowning achievement for me, Ryan, has been, you know, the Secret Origins podcast. But now it's definitely become midnight, the podcasting hour, because um, this is so in my wheelhouse. You know, so um, uh, we were glad to be associated with you guys. And, uh, you know, hopefully there will be more collaborations in the future. Who knows? I'm getting into the Cheers cast. You know, I I, yeah, I was a big Cheers fan way back in the day. And I recently, you know, ordered the first season on uh, amazon and um this is not you know physically just as this through amazon prime yeah um i'm getting into the the cheers cast and i'm really enjoying that so that's like one of my new favorite shows ryan so you're doing a bang-up job on that Uh, it's also you know made me become a bit more of a drinker (laughs) (laughs) my wife might not thank you for that but (laughs) i do
3: (laughs) i'm keeping norm's tab so you don't have to you are not expected to drink (laughs) as much as any of the characters of the show brilliant
1: (laughs) great great um,
3: alright well um, again thank you very much for being on this uh, this episode we will talk again uh, listeners we're going to take a short promo break right now and when we come back we will have listener feedback from the last episode don't go away
5: adventures into the unknown tales from the crypt skeleton hands. the haunt of fear dark shadows vampirella The Haunted Tank The Heap Eerie Swamp Thing Weird Mysteries Tomb of Dracula Tales of the Unexpected Werewolf by Night The Demon Man Thing Monster of Frankenstein Brother Voodoo The Son of Satan Night Force The Living Mummy The Sandman. Tomb of Darkness. Evil Ernie. Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula, may be found in the Long Box of Darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the Long Box of Darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals. To the Long Box of Darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night, and pleasant screams. <laughs>
3: On the last episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Paul Hicks and I achieved the minimum stated goal set out at the beginning of this series. We covered the final issues of Night Force Volume 1, completing the sci fi supernatural saga by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colin. If you listen to us, you know that that story that we covered from issues 11 through 14 was not good. But the sense of completion that we felt afterwards was very nice, and a lot of the comments we've received focused on that achievement. These are the comments from the website post, which, as always, you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Bradley Null said, Huzzah for good endings. Well, to the podcast, if not the series it covers. You know what? I'll take that huzzah. Thanks, Bradley. Uh, Chris Franklin from right here on the Fire & Water Network said, Sorry the series fizzled out for you guys, but it was entertaining to listen to either way. Uh, then Chris commented on the point where Paul and I discussed fan casting Baron Winters. Chris said, I always thought Baron Winters looked quite a bit like Jonathan Freed's Barnabas Collins. Cloak, same stringy hairdo, etc. So there is definitely a Dark Shadows vibe to the proceedings. Uh, I completely agree, and I... I think that was brought up in, like, the first episode that we covered Night Force, the comparison to Barnabas Collins. I think Gene Colan made that similarity intentionally. I mean, I would have to go back and re-listen to what we said on that episode, and I'm never doing that, so, anyway. Uh, Siskoid, also from here on the Fire and Water Network, said, Night Force finally came back in the 90s. I tried the continuation, but not for long. I don't know. Marv Wolfman is this household name, but I just can't get into his stuff. As is well known by now, I got into New Teen Titans too late, so all I got was his writer's block spread over years of comics because DC wouldn't let him leave. I have a tough time getting through Tomb of Dracula's purple prose, what I'd read before in French translation. Crisis is overrated as a story, just a collection of Easter eggs in between big tentpole moments. The less said about Vigilante, the better— but I haven't really looked at the original series, only later material. I'm still waiting for a Marv Wolfman book that really wows me. Night Force wasn't it. My Essential Tomb of Dracula still has a chance, but I'm not planning any other read-throughs. Recommendations from the peanut gallery aside from the obvious? You know, I agree with a lot of what Siskoid said there. Crisis and New Teen Titans are probably the books that Marv Wolfman is best known for, and I'm not crazy about either one of them. I think his best stuff for DC might actually be his Superman work, both before and after John Byrne's Man of Steel. Besides that, he had a run on Fantastic Four that was pretty good. I think it's been a while since I've read it. The Fantastic cast actually might have completed that run by now. Um, if anybody else is listening to this, if you have a recommendation for a Marv Wolfman book that we haven't mentioned, shoot it over to Siskoid. Uh, Rob Kelly also from this network said I never knew that Wolfman planned to bring Night Force back as yearly miniseries that was pretty ahead of the curve for comics at the time I wonder if he really had concrete plans or DC was just like uh, yeah sure we'll do Night Force again in the meantime can you write more new Teen Titans for us Um, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said I had dropped the title by this time and it looks like I chose wisely yeah Ange you did Uh, Then he said, I want a bonus episode of Winter's appearance in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Constantine owns him. I nominate myself as co-host. Find my joy. You know, when I get around to that, Ange, it is a deal. Uh, The Anti-Life Equation said, Ryan, you need to expand the scope of what this podcast covers to not just DC horror comics and cover the Tomb of Dracula if you want a great Wolfman colon horror series. Uh, As I have said, I love that book, but there are no plans to incorporate anything other than DC Comics into Midnight the Podcasting Hour. However, if you want to hear someone reviewing Tomb of Dracula, check out the Tomb of Ideas podcast that is going through all of Marvel's horror comics. It's a fun show, and I am really jealous of what they're covering right now. Uh, Lizanne Oswald left a comment basically saying the same things that we said about the problems with the story, the non-origin of the Baron, the forced connection to his son, etc., things like that. Thank you for that comment. Uh, Doug Zavisha said, Well done, Ryan and Paul. You guys really sold this one until you told us to stay the heck away. Sounds like a seemingly rushed finale with a few too many ideas that didn't quite fit and probably could have been avoided and maybe should have been avoided. Yeah, and Doug and I will reunite to talk about Dead Man sometime in the future. Finally, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, It's interesting that you both, and Ange above, felt so uncomfortable about a book with a dirty gray swastika on the cover. The bullet in the corner says DC, not SS. Are we Brits just a to the image because we all grew up with it plastered over our second boys' comic? Actun die, Britisher, and whatnot. What about all the DC War comics? Did they feel dodgy too? Anyway, thanks for a fun series. Well, you are welcome. Uh, as to that question, I don't know, maybe? I mean, I've never wanted to read Enemy Ace because... I'm not that interested in a war comic where the protagonist is killing my team. On the other hand, I've been reading a bunch of Golden Age Submariner stories lately, and as I mentioned to Rob Kelly, Namor was basically a foreign terrorist when Bill Everett created him. He came to America and started killing cops and destroying property. He was waging a one-man war against Americans just a year or two before we officially entered World War II that seems crazy now like if a modern publisher created a comic based on the adventures of a member of ISIL or Isis anyway that's enough rambling about that uh, I want to thank Clinton Robinson and Herman Lowe for appearing on this episode next time oh good Whew. saved by the bell and I'd save because I honestly I don't know what I'm doing for the next episode yet or when
0: midnight Podcasting Hour is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at FireandwaterPodcast.com or the Facebook page for midnight the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at Ryandaily one or send him an email at our at gmail.com midnight the podcasting hour is not affiliated with dc comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker music for this podcast is produced by neil Daly. any additional music audio clips or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended until next time
4: have a good midnight